Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jack English and this is City Hall Stories. These are conversations with local government leaders who are imagining, designing and creating our future societies. Aspirational governance is the most effective way to build a healthier future. And this podcast is built to be a source of inspiration for anyone who looks out their window and says, let's do better. I hope the incredible humans you'll hear from deliver that inspiration. Behind every village, city and state is a web of tools enabling staff to keep our lights on, our roads paved and our taxes safe. Many of these tools are software applications loosely connected by the term GovTech. This space has seen an eruption of interest in the past decade with the growth of software as a service, and especially in the past few years as a growing mound of capital chases stable growth. Jeff Cook sits in the middle of this all as managing director of Shea & Company. A leading author on GovTech, Jeff's role is facilitating the growth of GovTech firms through investment, mergers, and acquisitions. While this sounds like a rather dry subject, I do hope you stick around for this episode as I found it personally fascinating. Jeff takes us on a retrospective through the industry, why GovTech is in the global investment spotlight, and how a deal comes together. Please enjoy. Jeff, really excited for this one as the first episode of City Hall Stories that features someone not working directly in the public sector. As managing director at Shane Company, what does your firm do in a general sense? And then more specifically, what's the affiliation with the public sector? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Jack, thanks for, for having me for this. Yeah, so a, a little bit personal background and background on the firm. So I'm a, I'm a managing director at a firm called Shane Company. Um, and Shane Company, we're about 30 folks, uh, most of us based out of Boston, have an office in San Francisco. And as a firm, we have a, a pretty simple existence. We advise software businesses on either mergers and acquisitions, which is about three quarters of the work that we'll do in a given year. And about a quarter of what we do is advising uh, the same types of software businesses on late stage capital raises. You know, everything from a Series B round up to a pre-IPO round. The way that we cover the market at Shane Company, the, the broader software market, is taking a, a very vertically specific, you know, industry expertise-driven approach to certain segments within software. And where I've spent a lot of my time over the last, you know, five, seven years has been focused on the government technology sector. And so what we do there is what we do as a firm, is we uh, advise government software businesses on either a transaction where they might be selling to a strategic buyer, where they might be looking to take in additional investment from a private equity firm, where they might be looking to take a round of venture funding. So that's run the gamut. And over the last five years, we've advised uh, 22 GovTech businesses on a, you know, on a, on a transaction. And so that's, that's in a nutshell, what we've, we've done. I, I guess the only other thing I'd add to that is, and I know I'm sure we'll dive into this in our conversation here, Jack, but you know, government is a massive industry and our coverage of the government space has ranged from businesses selling into the federal level, into the state level, into the local level. It's been public administration. It's been citizen engagement it's been public safety. So we've we've seen a lot over the years of the different pockets and what has been a very large market of GovTech. And although you could probably write a book on it, could you briefly outline what GovTech really is? And I guess more specifically, it's broad evolution over the past 40 years within those different pockets, some that have grown and some that may have even shrunk. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the way that we think about GovTech is really any any software or even 
services that are sold into a entity that is funded with taxpayer dollars and delivering public service to to constituents. And that description in a nutshell covers a lot of ground. And you know the, the way that we segment the market, as I was describing a minute ago, is the federal market, the state, and I would say large city market, the local market, and then even within those different tiers of the market, uh, I think it warrants a further breakdown into, you know, is a public administration. So the tools and software offerings associated with helping government agencies run their their operations more efficiently, engage with citizens in a more meaningful manner, and then public safety. So how do you respond to a 911 call? What's the technology infrastructure underpinning that? How do you, what are the tools and solutions associated with making sure that first responders are trained? So there's just a lot of, of, of space that exists within the broader, um, you know, GovTech world. And again, I would say very simply, the way that we think about it is if you are a government entity and you are buying solutions, services, software from a vendor, that in our purview would characterize the GovTech world. And it, it's as dynamic a market as I think I've seen in in the broader software and technology space. You know, there's, I would say, a, uh, an often cited metric that, you know, hey, government is one of the, you know, the, the final frontiers for technology adoption. And just in my, you know, my work with the clients we've had and just seeing who, where they are in their journey, where their customers are in sort of the journey of modernization, I, I think it is a fair characterization to say that government is, you know, is behind where private sector has been from technology adoption perspective, uh, but it is rapidly catching up. And so, you know, what all that has meant over the last, I would call it, you know, five to 10 years has been incredible growth in this market where you're seeing a lot of the technologies that redefine private sector, cloud, big data, mobility, you know, pick your pick your tech buzzword. And there's starting to be widespread adoption and really interesting companies that have been built that are taking those technologies that are proliferated in the private sector and redefining how government works both internally and in engaging with their citizens in a way that has just created this incredibly vibrant dynamic market where I think if you're a government employee these days and looking to buy new technology, your options um, and the quality of those options are as strong as they've ever been before. And we see no signs of that trend of modernization of more technology adoption you know, starting to slow down at all. And for, in fact, especially what's happened over the last year uh, with, you know, with COVID and everything else, we frankly see that accelerating. And so while there's been just tremendous amounts of activity in the recent past, we feel like we're in the, to use a baseball analogy, in the first or second inning of what will be a decades long, you know, modernization of, of the overall government space. What's unique about software that is ultimately connected to citizens and elected officials, as opposed to, let's say, private sector software that's targeted at growing the bottom line? Yeah, it's, that's a, it's a good question. Maybe I'll answer it from the dimension of you know, what, what makes a government software business unique relative to its, its private sector counterparts. Um, you know, first, you know, what we've seen is that if you look at Salesforce, if you look at Oracle, if you look at the other household names that are established software vendors in the private sector, 
none of them have a really significant presence or mind share within the government world. And that's because government tends to do things differently than, than private sector. You know, within private sectors, as you mentioned a minute ago, uh, you know, you're motivated by shareholders, right, and driving value for shareholders, which ultimately means financial returns. And not that governments are, you know, not oriented in that fashion, but that is not priority number one. And, you know, because of that, I think governments tend to do things differently from a process perspective. Um, obviously, this whole idea of how do you engage with citizens is, you know, a unique facet to government. And that requires technology that is that is purpose-built. Great example is a citizen CRM. Um, you know, CRM is an often used term in, in the broader technology world. But citizen CRM within government means a completely different set of offerings than it does for like Salesforce CRM if you're an enterprise company. And, you know, you, you pick your, your sector within government and more often than not, they will have a very specific way of doing things that requires a specific software vendor, you know, to cater to that. So that's, you know, right off the bat, a big difference is that you need software that is purpose-built for governments. You know, the second piece of it is governments tend to be very loyal customers to their to their vendors. Um, you know, what that means from a financial perspective, and frankly, why I think there's a lot of uh, strategic buyer and private equity interest in this market, is that the retention rates uh, in this market are as high as we've seen. And what, what I mean by retention is if you're a software vendor, how much of your existing base of customers do you retain over the course of a year? Within government, it's it's incredibly high because customers tend to be very loyal. You know, the, the other piece of it is that governments overall, I think part of the reason why you have not seen as much venture investment, as much growth investment, is that there's a reality as to how quickly you can grow in this market. I think government not nor not rightly nor wrongly, you know, has been viewed as you know slower to adopt, longer sales cycles, more red tape in actually procuring technology. And what that means from a, a government software vendor is that or do you have that ability to grow two hundred percent year on year like you can in the private sector for some companies in the private sector? And I think the answer to that is you don't know you can. But what ultimately that means at the end of the day is you have a lot of these businesses in the government software world that are incredibly resilient businesses that are, are growing well, but not doubling their revenue every year, but are also making, you know, a healthy, a healthy profit margin. And so there's, you know, relative to software overall, they're very resilient, strong, customer focused businesses that frankly have attracted a lot of a lot of investment. Does that loyalty that you just mentioned in that almost fiscal conservatism, at the end of the day, I Yes, I can see it in two ways. On the one hand, that predictable revenue can really help grow a company and fuel strong research and development. But on the other hand, there's no reason to believe why that predictability might not just flow through to increase shareholder value with no real value being provided to the local government. Do you have an opinion on which way GovTech seems to fall? Is that predictability really a benefit for local governments at the end of the day? I think it is. You know, a lot of the, let's say the predominant way that investors have looked at this market. And we've worked with investors on dozens of transactions. And there's a, a very clear pattern to, to what attracts investors to a business within the government space and how they think about scaling that business and growing that business is probably the better turn of phrase. 
And so, you know, first and foremost, what will attract an investor are what we think of as the, you know, the basic fundamentals of what makes government a great place to invest uh, if you are a, a private equity firm or a venture firm. And one, you have really happy clients and importantly, happy clients that have a propensity uh, to buy more from a vendor they know, from a vendor that they, that they trust. When investors look at these businesses, more often than not, and you know, it certainly will depend on the scale of, of, of the company, the trajectory and the pattern that we have seen is that investors will, you know, will find a business that has acquired a few hundred customers on a single product. And through the conversations that the company has with all those customers over time, two things become pretty clear. You know, one, the customers are, are happy, um, but two, that the customers have other technology needs that they end up asking that vendor about. And so what the tried and true way has been um, for investors to make a return, and frankly, the customers win in this case as well, is to undergo a product expansion journey following the investment. Sometimes that's organic. So developing new products alongside what the existing products have been. Um, and sometimes it's, it's M&A driven, which frankly has been a, a major catalyst for a lot of the activity that's been in the market, where you look at a Granicus or someone like that, who is consistently adding new products to their portfolio, you know, to build a broader platform to do more and create more value for their, their government uh, and customer. So I don't know exactly what the timeline's been. Maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 15 years, but effectively we've seen a real explosion in the volume of software as a service applications offered to governments, as you'd rightly said earlier. And I guess what this results in is, A, yes, increased services and uh, a lot of benefits for local governments, but it also means a ton of cold emails in their inbox each day. Do you think that this current setup can continue in the sense of being such a disparate wide market with so many individual players each targeting different verticals or are we slowly heading toward a, a consolidation phase where a granicus where a tyler will eventually eat the market and it's going to be back to more of a single throat to choke yeah you know i would say with, within any market within software there's always this ebbing tide of trending you know two platforms that are that single throat to choke you mentioned, and then the tide flowing the other way, which is gravitating more towards point solutions. And, and frankly, the, the way that I look about look at it, um, just you know, having seen this in a few different markets in software, is the bigger and more diversified a, a company can get, or a company becomes rather, the more they're unable to focus on a single, you know, a, on a single solution. And when that happens, what we've seen is that it creates space for new entrants in the market to reinvent how that solution can be done, can be delivered, and, and just deliver it in a you know better, faster, cheaper way. Maybe said more simply and more clearly, you know, as platforms get bigger, they have more product areas they're looking after. And I've always been a believer in the idea that you know focus begets success. And as these platforms get bigger. Um, what you will often see is that there will be this next generation of, you know, of vendors that are coming behind them and, you know, nipping at their heels in some of the product areas that they've, they've been in. And so, you know, I think if, as you look at five-year time horizons in this market, you will absolutely see periods of consolidation. 
And then I think if you look at the next five years, you'll see a period of a lot of new companies being created. And as those companies get bigger, then consolidation begins anew. I don't think that there is ever going to be an end state. There will always be that balance that exists between platforms and you know the smaller point solutions. And that, I think that's just a healthy thing for the market overall. You recently have written a couple of awesome articles on govtech.com on the changes that we're seeing specifically in the market in the past year and, and really six months. What are some of these changes and, and what from a macro sense is actually driving them? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, going back to my my previous answer, I mean, we are absolutely in a period of of consolidation in this in this market. I mean, pick your sector within government, you will find that there is more often than not a private equity backed large business that has been very aggressive in consolidating their market. Why why is that? What's happened in the last year that has been a catalyst for this? One is tech valuations coming out of COVID have gone through the roof. The whole digitization of every single aspect of of life has hit uh, a knee in the curve in terms of the trajectory over the last year um, because because of COVID. And accordingly, a lot of tech valuations in the public markets and the stock markets have been at record highs. And that has trickled down for sure into the GovTech market, where Investors who look at some of those businesses in the private market and look at how they're being valued and then look at the fundamentals of GovTech business relative to those, their counterparts in the private sector, I think the, the typical takeaway is, wow, these GovTech businesses are very resilient. They have excellent fundamentals in terms of client retention, in terms of growth. And because of that, GovTech businesses are being valued at or above comparable levels to their their peers in private sector. Um, and, and that's a big change from what it was, you know, two, three years ago. I mean, what we've seen anecdotally here at a chain company is that, you know, valuation multiples have effectively doubled in the last two years. And what, what that has meant is that fast forwarding to today is a lot of businesses that were valued at half of what they are valued today in the current market with you know, every founder, every shareholder will have some view in terms of when they plan to exit an investment. And a lot of investors, I think, and and founders who are looking at the market today realize two things. You know, one, we are in a record valuation climate. Two, there's been a lot of these large businesses that have taken recent investment that are the consolidators in their markets who are being very aggressive, you know, calling on who they view as the most strategic acquisition targets. And then three is, you know, here in the States is there's the appending and who knows what it's going to be, but tax law changes, which will inevitably affect what the, what shareholders will make at the end of a transaction. And so I think those three together have caused a lot of folks to, um, to say, you know what, we were thinking about exiting in a year, 18 months, two years, but based on the number of conversations we have from potential buyers um, that are wanting to open a conversation based on their knowledge of where market multiples are for, for valuations of their business and based on some uncertainty around what, what it means for, you know, from a tax perspective, that's caused a lot of people to say, you know what, now is probably the right time to, you know, to at least have a few conversations. And more often than not, 
those conversations have resulted in uh, in, a, in an acquisition, in a new you know a new round of investment. Um, but it is it is definitely a market climate right now where I think a lot of people look and say, if we were planning to do something, now is a good time to do that. And so what that has meant from you know if you if you read any of the industry news articles tracking transactions is that there have been a record number of transactions of deal value of multiples and we don't see any signs of that stopping anytime soon so not on a specific sense but if possible let's walk through a deal being constructed soup to nuts what are some of the key factors that your team's looking at how do you advise a seller do you ever push back and tell them now is not the right time maybe focus on uh, raising specific metrics do you mind just kind of telling us or walking us through that process from start to finish yeah, so w- when we engage with clients, um, you know, usually there's a conversation where uh, where the founder or the shareholders of the business say, you know what, we think there might be something to do. Can you give us some advice around what the art of the possible might be? There's there's two things that we look at. You, you know, one is from who who are the likely buyers and just where are they at in terms of you know our perspective on their appetite to to likely pursue a transaction with. The group with the the company that we're talking to, you know, the second part of it is to is to understand the financial metrics of the business. You know, what are the growth rates? What are the retention rates? What are the the key performance indicators that drive valuation for a company? And based on that, and based on our knowledge of where how other businesses have performed, I think we can quickly come up with you know a view of here's who we think the likely buyers are. Here's what we think the likely valuation would be. And just provide that level of, of insight from our perspective to, to the owners of the business for them to make the decision and say, you know what, that feels like it meets our definition of success. You know, let's go have a, a handful of conversations. And then, you know, from there, it's, a, it's more designing a, a process around, well, how do we maximize competition and how do we make sure that we're engaging with the right buyers such that we are finding a good home, next home for for the business, um, and obviously there's the whole valuation piece of it as well. Um, but that's that's typically how we engage with a client early on, and every every process that we every sale process that we run is is a little bit different. But it usually starts with just a meeting of the minds in terms of here's what the art of the possible is. I don't mean this to sound like a loaded question because obviously nothing's black or white, but. Is taking private equity or engaging with private equity ever a bad thing for a GovTech firm? As we look back over 20, 30 plus years of GovTech, are there any standout cases where potentially ambitious growth actually harmed the overall mission of the company? You know, honestly, not that, not that I've seen. In ter- to answer the last part of your, your question, Jack, in terms of, you know, have there been any cases of, of high-profile cases of, of value destruction, I guess is probably the, the turn of phrase I would use. Look, if, if you are a government buyer and one of your vendors takes private equity money, more often than not, that is going to be a good thing. And when I say more often than not, in the significant majority of cases, because again, how, how private equity has looked at every one of our clients you know, has not been a, well, let's see how much cost we can take out by removing a support person to to increase cash flow, government has become a growth market, and so I think the lens that every investor has taken to this market is 
how can we grow faster through investments in sales and marketing, customer support, things like that? How can we expand the product portfolio to do more for our customers? And it's really been about how do we accelerate the growth trajectory of the business, not how do we optimize the bottom line of of the business. And, you know, it's worked. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the businesses that have taken investment over the last, you know, four or five years have grown significantly following, uh, you know, an investor putting money into into a business. Because, again, I would say everyone's mindset as they look at this market is growth. One other thing to mention, too, is what makes GovTech businesses tick is the end relationship with the customer. And I think any investor that knows this market well realizes that doing anything to disrupt a good relationship with the customer is not a good thing for the business. And that is a rule, if not rule number one, a top rule in how any investor will think about investing in this market. You know, where you might see disruption is on the strategic side. There's a higher likelihood where you might see some degree of change if a strategic is the acquirer of a vendor that a government agency might be using. And it's not in, in every case. I, I think some strategics will, you know, will either run the, continue to run the business independently as a division within their broader umbrella and over time figure out the right way to, to fold the business in. But again, trying to protect that relationship that exists between vendor and uh, government agency. But you know, there are there have been cases, you know, over time where there is a higher degree of disruption. Maybe there is a you know a migration path that is created as part of the acquisition, where a solution might be end of life at some point. And those are the the situations where. If you are a government agency, you may find some level of disruption. But again, going back to your original question around private equity or uh, you know, or venture capital, we have not really seen a, a large degree of, of disruption in that relationship that exists between the company and, and the, uh, the government agency. Jeff, is there any low-hanging fruit, let's say from an operational perspective, that B2G companies, right, so business to government or GovTech in general, can learn from B2B, business to business? And conversely, are there lessons that B2B companies can glean maybe from the more rigorous sales process that GovTech and B2G companies usually have to engage in? There are absolutely lessons that I think B2G businesses can learn from B2B. You know, where we have seen that has primarily been around how B2G companies go to market. You know, historically, B2G businesses sold in a very high-touch, hugely relationship-driven, long sales cycle process. And, you know, some of that is endemic to government where, you know, at certain price points, you have to get council approval for for different, uh, for procurement of different IT systems. But with the advent of SaaS and cloud, where you're not having to procure a lot of, you know, servers and hardware up front, it's changed the entry-level price point. A lot of the fastest growing businesses in the in the B two G world, or sorry, in the B two B world, have had this really low touch, um, you know, high velocity go to market model where they can acquire a lot of customers really quickly uh, without having to show up and spend a lot of time in person with with their buyer. And we're starting to see that in in the B two in the B two G space, where that same model, where it's not a protracted sales cycle, where it's a very low entry price point to buy a software solution, you know, that's starting to prolif- proliferate in the, uh, in the BGG sector. 
And there's a whole you know, set of processes and systems and, and things that support that higher velocity sales motion that is well-established in, in private sector. And, you know, frankly, a lot of clients that we've worked with have hired sales and marketing professionals from B2B to inject that DNA into their business. Because I think the way the government buys software overall has changed with the advent of, of cloud. I'm not asking you to put your finger on the scale, so to say, and give an official endorsement of anyone or any company. But are there any firms out there that are really exciting for you personally, either from a business perspective or a product perspective? Good question. I think I'd be reluctant to mention specific vendors because there's there's probably too many to, to note at this point that I view as doing something really interesting. So maybe, maybe I'll talk it about it more from a sector perspective where we see a lot of you know, fascinating high growth companies that are really redefining um, how different functions within government work. You know, top of mind for me is, you know, what one area is payments. 80% of the way that a citizen interacts with government will end in a transaction or a payment. And so the whole way that government and citizens enact, or I should say transact, there's a lot of high growth businesses you know, that are redefining how that, how that happens in a very modern consumer-like way that you might expect if you were working with a, a best-in-class B2B business. And so payments overall is uh, a really interesting area to us where we see a lot of company formation, a lot of established high-growth businesses, frankly, a lot of opportunity because that is still in its infancy in terms of the digitization of, of transactions between government and constituent. Another interesting area that we look at is public safety and specifically public safety training. The events of the last 18 months have driven a need for SAS. They've also driven a need for more accountability and transparency among first responders. And, you know, tantamount to that is the training for those first responders. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of innovation, a lot of really interesting companies being created in the whole public safety training segment of, of the market. I, I don't want to dwell on, on just those two. I mean, I think those are, are two emblematic examples. So Jeff, we have a, a traditional closing question here on City Hall Stories. Very curious mm-hmm. on your answer, and you can answer it either from the perspective of maybe being a citizen or working across the GovTech space, your choice, but what's one accepted truth of local government that you think is incorrect? Yeah, maybe I'll answer that from... My perspective sitting here in my, my professional life, which is, you know, the idea that government is a decade behind private sector. I think that what we've seen is that, yeah, there are absolutely, you know, different pockets of the government world that maybe are not as far along on the modernization journey as others, but it's absolutely happening. And if it was a decade behind private sector at some point, it feels like that gap is narrowed, you know, considerably now. I mean, just the amount of organization around, you know, budgets, around, frankly, the growth that we see in our clients, you know, it's clear that there's this groundswell of real emphasis on modernizing every aspect of government. I I think some of the the comments of, oh, you know, government's 10 years behind, you know, the private sector, in, in some cases was said in a pejorative manner, but I, I could, I don't think that could be further from the truth at this point. 
um, that there's just there's so much investment, there's so much new talent coming into uh, into this market that I think it's going to be one of the most attractive technology subsectors in technology broadly. Um, and it's going to be really fun to sort of watch that happen over the next 10, 20 years. Jeff, this has been such an insightful conversation. I hope all of our local government listeners have enjoyed getting that insight into the businesses that are able to drive the great work that they do each and every day. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate you having me, Jack. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.